Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Federal agency scores plummeted on the 17th round of scorecards for how they deal with the Federal IT Acquisition Reform Act, or FITARA. But don't think the wheels have fallen off IT modernization itself. Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller, joins me with why these lower grades aren't necessarily a sign of problems. And Jason is with us now. Let's start with the beginning here, Jason. How exactly did they do on the FATARA scorecards? There was only one A. This uh, USAID, Agency for International Development, got their uh, fifth A in a row and ninth overall since FATARA started. And the rest were Bs and Cs and, and even a couple Ds this time. Uh, and the last time they did a scorecard, Tom, in, gen- in September of 2023, there were no Ds. This time there's three of them. Last time there were five Cs. This time there's 10 of them. And last time there was 16 Bs. Now there's only 10 of them. So you see grades dropped across the board. And, and, and Tom, this is, you know, again, disappointing, but let's let's not you know, I'll, I'll run to the corner and cry. We're not going back to COBOL. It's not client server all over again, right? There are reasons for the drops in grades, and they're good reasons. And they are? Well, let's start with the fact they uh, actually evolved the scorecard. And one of the ways they evolved the scorecard was with this brand new, something called the cloud computing uh, category. And I caught up with Carol Harris, GAO's uh, Director of Cybersecurity and IT, after last week's roundtable to find out more about this new category. The cloud category comes from work that we are currently doing for Mr. Connolly with regard to federal cloud procurement across the government. And the five things that we are measuring in the cloud category right now comes from OMB's 2019 federal cloud computing strategy. So among other things, agencies are required to ensure that the CIOs oversee modernization, that agencies have cloud service level agreements attached to all of their cloud deployments, as well as standardized SLAs, uh, service level agreements. And so these are the things that we were looking for across the 24 agencies, and that's what we measured for the calculation of this category. GAO's Carol Harris says the new report on agency efforts to meet this OMB cloud smart requirements should be out later this spring. She also highlighted one big concern that's already emerged from GAO's preliminary work around the implementation of, you heard her say, service level agreements or SLAs for cloud instances. None of the agencies have fully implemented the five categories with the exception of DOD. And so that's something that we need to see improved progress in. And that's when I cited the 47% on average, that's what we're not seeing across the agencies in the implementation of these five categories. There's some surprise that DOD was the leader of this, but credit to them. When you looked at some of the other categories, are there also other areas that you would point to said other shortfalls in terms of how the implementation is going that you can talk to a little bit? One of the most surprising things is, you know, one of the key requirements is for high-value assets to have these SLAs and to have continuous awareness of the confidentiality, the integrity, and the availability of the assets and the information contained on the cloud for these HVAs. And that's something that we didn't see across the board. And that's, you know, one of the areas that in particular agencies need to prioritize and and get that addressed immediately. Now, Harris says comparing the previous scorecards, this one actually is not a fair comparison. It's more apples and oranges because of these, uh, the cloud computing and other changes. And that's why the drop in grades actually is not too concerning for Congressman Jerry Connolly, the author of Fatara, Harris, and even the CIOs who spoke at the roundtable. And Connolly has been doting over these scorecards as if they were like his pet cocker spaniel for many years. What else did he change in this round of scorecards? 
Another big change was around the MGT Act, Modernizing Government Technology. Now, Tom, as a quick reminder, the MGT Act allowed agencies, authorized them to set up working capital funds to help pay for IT modernization from savings or leftover money. And I looked at this back when this was passed uh, back in 2018, and about 17 agencies already had working capital funds that included IT, but maybe weren't related to the MGT Act. So they were, at the time, they were getting penalized for really something that many people would call semantics. At the same time, agencies, there were several who were unable to set up working capital funds because their general counsels believe they needed permission from the appropriators, which they haven't gotten. And in fact, the Department of Housing and Urban Development is one of those agencies. Sarah Jazz is the deputy CIO at HUD. She says HUD is work has a working capital fund in its CFO's office, but that does not support IT modernization efforts. That is something that has impeded some of the flexibilities that we would like to be able to continue to work towards. Uh, we do see some hope of that coming into the fiscal 24 year, and we're hopeful that that is something that we will be able to leverage in order to be able to quickly address some of the issues that are uh, part of our long underlying strategies. HUD Deputy CIO Sarah Jazz. Speaking at the roundtable last week held by Jerry Connolly around Fatara 17. The GAO's Harris also says the change in the scorecard recognizes agencies which have a working capital fund or something that functions like that and the honor and the spirit, obviously, of, of the MGT Act. And the scores reflected that, Tom. 11 agencies now have A's up from 8 last time. Nine now have B's up from seven back in September. There are no C's this time. That's down from eight in September. And actually, there are uh, four D's this time up from one last time. Harris says another big change is something called the Progress Tracker, where GAO and Connolly are paying attention to previous scorecard categories, where the committee decided agencies had accomplished goals like software licensing and data center consolidation. But there's a recent report from GAO that highlights problems with software licensing that agencies now have, have seemed to have stepped backwards. And Harris says that's something the Progress Tracker is designed to stop. That report was looking at what are the most widely and costliest software licenses across the federal government. And then the second part of it was, okay, of the most widely used licenses, what were over and under purchased? And we couldn't answer that last question because the agencies didn't have the information available to do so. And the key ingredients that you need in order to be able to know whether an agency has appropriately assessed the licenses for their organization is whether they have tracked the license usage, and then also compared their inventories of software licenses against their known purchases. And we didn't see that in all cases. And so unfortunately, we have seen the backsliding because they were in a position to do that in 2020. GAO's Carol Harris, again, after the Fatara roundtable held last week by Jerry Connolly, she says it's clear agencies have lost this as a priority because she blames it was not on the Fatara radar. All right. And getting back to Connolly and the Fatara radar, he added the transition to the EIS, that big GSA telecommunications contract. That's on the scorecard a year or so ago. But you found out something else about what's going on with EIS transition and the scorecard. Now, we know agencies, and especially large ones, have struggled to migrate away from the old networks contract to the EIS vehicle. And the Fatara scorecard showed not a lot of, not any progress in September. Ten agencies with passing grades, 14 still with failing grades for their transition, uh, mostly or all from networks. But I've also now learned that Connolly asked GAO to report on the EIS transition progress. Now, he asked for that review in May 2022. That's when agencies missed that first real big deadline. But Harris says the work based on that request actually will start this spring. We'll be able to really dig in deep and ascertain like progress and the reasons why agencies are 
not able to, you know, make this transition on time. And we'll also dig into the missed cost savings as a result as well, because that's a huge component of this. But when you take a look at the progress that's been made, certainly over the past two years, agencies have, you know, done their best. And But still, we still have, I believe, 14 agencies that, that did not meet the deadline. And so as a result, you see those Fs on the scorecard. But in fairness, though, because they are, you know, nearly 80, 90 percent complete, we did factor that level of completion into their scores versus, you know, no credit whatsoever, to be fair to them. We have seen seen some progress there, but we want to see more. Yeah, everybody to, wants to see more. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a common factor, Tom, is around successful agencies have an executive sponsor. They have visibility across the agency and their telecommunications network and associated inventory. And I think that's something GAO will continue to look at uh, in, the, in the coming months. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, 
I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight... I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, 
And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.